You may be seated. And I am Dave Mitchell, and it's good to be with you here this morning. I will be your preacher today. And uh, I, I didn't say it for that, but you're very kind. If you had stood, it would be even better. But uh, All right. We've got to get back to it. Listen, we're in the uh, book of Mark. We've been going through the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 13. I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Mark 13. There's an outline in the bulletin. You'll find it extremely helpful. And I just realized I forgot my Bible. Let me get my Bible. Just a minute. I think I left it back here. Uh, yeah, here it is. Okay, good. I kept it for safekeeping. And uh, I just want to make sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Patriots. Yeah. I Totally oblivious. And, uh, see, I kept it in here for safekeeping. Oh, there's something else in here. Slater. It's autographed on there. Jackie Slater, Romans 8, 28, 1976 to 1995. So this is the real deal from our own Jackie Slater. He usually sits right over there. You can't miss him, but he's back there with his son, Matthew. So does this, is this better like that? <laughs> so, all right. Well, imagine, imagine if you would with me, if I could predict the score of today's game and it came out accurately, not only that, I could predict how many passing yards Goff would throw, how many passing yards Brady would throw, how many yards each team would run, and I had specifically the exact number of each of those statistics. Be impressed, right? That would be a word from the Lord. That would be a prophecy. Well, all sat down with Jesus in verse 3, but they're talking about this building, and then Jesus makes this prophetic word in verse 3. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus predicted that this structure here would be destroyed. No stones on top of other stones. So this is maybe about 30, 33 A.D. when Jesus said that. And they're looking at him. They can't imagine that anybody would tear down such an amazing structure that was built by the people of Herod as he wanted to cater favor to the Jewish people by building it. Well, it turns out in 70 A.D., a Roman ruler by the name of Titus came into the city of Jerusalem 
and destroyed the temple. It was gone. So Jesus predicted in about 33 A.D. that in 70 A.D. Titus would destroy this temple. No one could have known that except God himself. So if Jesus said, I predict that this would be torn down and it turned out to be torn down, then other prophetic words of Jesus have to have a lot of truth within them that we can trust. So we're going to talk about those other things that he wants us to understand. And so the disciples then ask a question. They ask actually two questions. It's in Mark chapter 13, verse 4. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So when's the temple going to be torn down, and by the way, what else is going to be happening in the end times? Now here's the interesting thing before we get into the text. Jesus knows that he's going to die. Jesus has the conversation with four of his disciples on the Mount of Olives that overlooks the city of Jerusalem. He speaks to these four who were the original four chosen, and they become the last four that have this discourse. And when you think he's going to die, this is Wednesday night, he's going to die on Friday, so he's got like a day and a half before he dies on the cross, and he knows that. What's the last thing Jesus talks about? Prophecy. He talks about the future. He talks about his second coming. He talks about events that surround his second coming. Before that, he talked about money. We heard last week, the widow's might. When you have less than 48 hours to live, let's say you knew you are going to die on Tuesday, would the Super Bowl be as important to you this afternoon? Maybe not. Would be there other things you'd rather talk about and spend your time doing with family? Possibly so. So when Jesus has only a day and a half to live, the thing that he would choose to talk about with his disciples becomes highly significant, not just another way to fill time. He wants us to understand some things about the future. So we're going to dive into the future. I love prophecy, and we're going to talk about the verses 1 through 27 that we're not going to get into in a lot of detail because I've been teaching the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and we'll be teaching on that for about nine months. So it's hard to compress nine months into 30 minutes. So the things we're going to miss, but believe me, we're going to look at it from a 50,000-foot level. And these are the two questions we're going to ask and answer. These are the questions that the disciples asked. What will happen in the end times? Mark 13, 5 through 27. This is an analytical outline of the passage, if you're an English major. And then secondly, when will this take place? And he talks about that in verses 28 to 32. That should be more next week. Eric will tell you when Jesus is going to return. That's next Sunday. So you want to come back because he's got to, I think he's got the date and everything. Maybe in the time of day, I'm not sure. So what we have then are these two things that are being asked and answered. And so what will happen in the end times? So let's look at this. This particular section of what will happen in the end times can be broken down into th- two sections. First of all, he's going to talk about those things that should not mislead us. And then he's going to talk about those things that we should be looking for. So the things that would mislead us. He he warns us in verses 13, 5. He says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one misleads you. We are misled constantly about prophetic things. I'm going to give you three examples of that. The word mislead is a wonderful word. I like to talk about it a lot. The word mislead is the word planeo. Sometimes it is translated to deceive. It's used that way in 2 Corinthians 11, to deceive someone, to mislead someone. The word planeo, we get the English word planet. Very good. 
And what does a planet do? It orbits around the sun. So here is my spin on that, if you will. Thank you, Michael. See, I'm working hard to keep you with me because this is not about healing your marriage. It's about something that will happen in the future. All right. So, planeo, to orbit around something, but you don't know you're orbiting around the wrong thing. One of the worst things you can do is feel like you're really doing something great, but realizing you're orbiting around the wrong thing. To mislead someone is to make them think, I'm going around something very important, and God says, you're going around something that's very fake. I don't want you to do that. So what are those things that he doesn't want us to orbit around? There are three of them in this passage. Watch out for misleading prophets. Watch out for those who misuse the text of the scriptures. And we look at that particular verse, verse 6. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. Now, I don't know a lot of people that come out and say, I'm Jesus Christ, unless they have some sort of a mental problem. But there are those that pretend as though they have a prophetic word from God and they are misleading people by the misuse of the so-called prophetic word from God. One of the latest, greatest examples is Harold Camping. Harold Camping in 2011 predicted that Jesus was going to return to the earth in May 21st and they even had a big billboard sign on the street on May 21, 2011, Jesus is coming back. He had done his math. Now, a lot of people swallowed that and believed it. Interesting, he also had said in September the 6th in 1994, Jesus is coming back. Well, he didn't come back, just by the way, he did not come back in September the 6th, 1994, but that didn't stop Harold Camping from once again predicting that in 2011 he would return. I remember in 1994 when he made that prediction, we had some neighbors who were uh, maybe a, a little bit untaught in scriptures, and they were in a panic, the wife especially. They came to our home, tell us, help us understand this. And, of course, it opened the opportunity for the gospel and to share that with them. They both now know the Lord. They're both now in heaven, uh, interestingly enough. But these things are just crazy prophetic words that mislead people. The second thing that misleads us, that could mislead us, are current events that mislead us about end times. Jesus talks about these things that we don't have time to get into, but wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. These are merely the beginning of birth pangs. These, these are indicators that maybe the end is close, but they are not indicators that the end is now. Some people use the circumstances of geography and nations moving around and, and powers and headlines and newspapers to somehow create a misleading message about end times. Let me give you an example. Two weeks ago, now this is, let me just uh, preface this, this has nothing to do with politics. I'm not going there. You believe what you want to believe about politics. All I'm interested in is accuracy of interpretation of scriptures. But here is a, a and I'll mention his name, but there is an evangelist that is on YouTube that just three weeks ago was teaching about prophecy from Daniel and made one of the craziest malpractice interpretations of Scripture that I've heard in a long time. He quoted this particular passage. Daniel 9.25 in the King James Version says, Now therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, because that's the focus here, to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Don't worry about all that. That's a whole other topic. 
But here's the key phrase. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troubled times. That prophecy is talking about King Cyrus in 538 B.C. King Cyrus is the king of Persia. King Cyrus made a declaration. The Jews may return from the land that they knew as Persia at that time, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And so he financed that. It's a huge miracle of God that God had predicted in Isaiah. And so it took place. This evangelist took this particular passage and said, you know, we have our own current day King Cyrus. It's called President Trump. And just as King Cyrus wanted to rebuild Jerusalem, so President Trump moved the capital to Jerusalem. Aha, King Cyrus, today. And then he said, not only did King Cyrus want to do that, he wanted to build a wall around Jerusalem. Have you heard anything about a wall being built these days? And somehow he has then construed from this passage that President Trump is like King Cyrus wanting to build a wall on the border of U.S. and Mexico. That is malpractice of biblical interpretation to its highest degree. It's shameful, and I say that without judging, but just speaking the truth. It's taking current events and reading into a passage things that that passage has no sense of truth about it. Not only that, it's interesting, there's a coin that somebody made that looks like an old coin. Here's President Trump. Here's King Cyrus. Cyrus Belfour Trump. Declaration 1917 to 2017. I'm just, I'm baffled by that. But there are thousands of people that buy into this. Jesus said, don't be misled. Believe me, it just breaks my soul when I see people misuse Scripture to build a political persuasion about things that that Scripture has nothing to do with. So, all that to say, watch out. Don't be misled. The, second, the third thing to be not misled is watch out for persecution of believers. Jesus said, and I'm just really shortening the whole passage. There's a whole lot there. But I just want to take this one verse. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. He goes into great detail about persecution. And there's a lot of persecution of believers. He says these are birth pangs. These are, these are indicators that the end times will come. And I could go into great detail. We could spend the rest of this time talking about the persecution of believers, of Christians in North Korea and China, in India, in Pakistan, in Somalia, in Libya. Uh, in particular, there are women that are being abused. One doctor who is a believer, who has won the Nobel Peace Prize, said six women are raped who are Christian women every day and forced into marriage in Islam countries. It's just horrendous. And those are far away. We, fortunately, are not dealing with a lot of that here, but we have our own form of hatred that is being promoted. I'm just going to give you one example. I could give you many more examples of this. I could go for hundreds. But here's a woman by the name of Dr. Angela McCaskill. She is the chief diversity officer of Gallaudet University, Washington, D.C., and our sign language person probably has heard of that university because it's known as a university that trains students who have hearing impairments. 
She is deaf, and she is the first deaf black American to get a PhD from that university. 23 years, chief diversity officer. She signed a petition that allowed people in Washington, D.C. to vote on the definition of marriage. Some of her peers or some of the faculty heard about the fact and could look it up that she had signed this petition that allows people to vote on the definition of marriage. The president of that university heard about her signing that petition and he suspended her from her job for that reason alone. So for three months, she didn't know whether she'd get her job back. Sort of ironic, the chief diversity officer can't be too diverse about things that people have decided we can't diverse from. Fortunately, the governor of the state came and had his way, and she got her job back. But I'm telling you, during that period of time, this lovely woman was harassed and hated and persecuted by a lot of people that saw her as some sort of a bigot. Now, that's just one example we could go over and over. And I'm trying to build a case about politics or about any of these particular topics, but simply to say that you and I are, are a shrinking minority in terms of the things that a lot of us believe in that Jesus taught us that Jesus was not shy about. And when he says you're going to be hated by a lot of people, including your own family members, he says, I just want to alert you to that, that that's all part of the plan because the gospel must be heard. The more we hear about persecution, the more we see those being persecuted spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 12, 1 and 2. Of the four men that were there with Jesus on the Mount of Olives when he was giving this little discourse, one of them was James, the brother of John. James was the first apostle to be killed in the line of duty, if you will, as a believer in Jesus Christ in Acts 12, 1 and 2. So James didn't have much longer to live when Jesus gave this message. Maybe months of his life was left. And so what Jesus wants us to say today is don't be misled by false prophets. Don't be misled by current events that people are misinterpreting Scripture around. Don't be misled by the fact that persecution and hardship will come. Because he is calling us into a greater ministry of the gospel so that the gospel can be spread, so that everybody can hear about Jesus. Let's not get hung up on the politics that we believe in. Let's be all over and all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he would be made known, not that my personal political opinion is made known. It's always got to come back to Jesus, and that's part of his emphasis is, as this Christian woman made it all about as well. So watch out for misleading things. Now watch for true signs. He continues on in this little discourse, in his last will and testament of his final words before he died. He says this interesting thing, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Here is the question of the day. What is the abomination of desolation? How many of you woke up this morning asking yourself that question? One. So I know you are eager to learn what the abomination of desolation is. Well, I'm going to share it with you. Jesus said in verse 14 again, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be for the reader to understand, Mark inserts this little thing, says, man, don't miss this. So this is important. In other words, 
So I want you all to know before you leave today what the abomination of desolation is. Because when you see that, when you see that, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When you see that, then you know the end is here. Something big is about to occur, and it's going to be followed by the return of Jesus Christ. And so this is what the abomination of desolation looks like from Daniel. Daniel talked about this. Daniel wrote his book somewhere about 550, 540 B.C. Daniel, dining in a lion's den, he's in Babylon and so forth. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering and on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So Daniel talks about the abomination, desolation. 500 years later, Jesus is talking about the abomination, desolation. Wow, what's the odds of that? They're both talking about much the same thing. So let me give you a little chart to help outline this. So Daniel in the surviving the lion's den and he's not power he was a long time high ruler in the country of babylon and then persia when persia took over well daniel in 530 bc is predicting a fellow by the name of antiochus epiphanes and i don't have a lot of time to get into all the details as to why this is but just trust me trust me on this he looks to the future that there will be an event that will be this event antiochus epiphanes was a ruler of greece and he was doing battle with egypt and then he wanted to have a buffer between himself and Egypt, so he goes and conquers the nation as we know it today of Israel. He goes into Israel and begins to take over the Jewish people. And he begins to persecute the Jewish people. So much so that when Antiochus Epiphanes came on December the 16th in 167 B.C., historical fact, you can Google it right now on your phone, that's what happened. And he went into the temple the temple that was not the Herod temple, but the temple that was called Zerubbabel's temple that had been built in that era as well. He goes into that temple and he sacrifices a pig and he forces the Jewish people to honor the God of Zeus. So he wipes out the Jewish people's religion and then he forces the Jewish people to follow his religion and he forced them on the 25th day of every month they must sacrifice a pig on the altar in honor of his birthday. And if you don't do that, I will kill you, he said. That's persecution. So he's literally turning their religion all upside down. That is the abomination of desolation. It is this complete abolishment of the Jewish religion as it was known, and it is forcing by government to believe this to worship this way, to think this way, to talk this way, this is the way you've got to be now that I am in charge, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now Jesus comes along, maybe it's 33, 30 AD, and he then predicts the abomination desolation. Well, maybe he has in mind what Daniel said, but he is also looking forward. You recall in Mark 13 too, he said, not a stone will be unturned, destroyed by the... Um, temple and in 70 AD Titus came in and you could read Josephus who was an historian at the time and he writes these horrible horrible things that were done to the Jewish people that's an abomination a desolation but here's what scripture does and I could give you others examples scripture will take an historical event and predict it like Antiochus Epiphany as Daniel predicted this Jesus predicted this we also know that in Scripture there are short-term fulfillments and then they foreshadow long-term fulfillments as well. 
And again, I don't have time to get into it, but these both then in these passages that we could look at are also looking for a future desolation, a future abomination of desolation, a future way that the Jewish people will be persecuted by an individual that is typically referred to as the Antichrist, that in point of fact, Scripture calls him the beast. There will be a figure that will come and rise up in power, who he himself will have a form of religion, and he will abolish the religion of the people that lived in those days, including the Christians that will be there, and he will force by government mandate a new religion, a new way of thinking, a new belief system. This is the way you talk. This is the way you live. This Antichrist will form a desolation of the religious institutions of that time. This is a future event that is yet to occur. Daniel talked about it. Jesus talked about it. It's yet to occur. It's the future tribulational period. And these are things that Jesus talks about, and he proves that what he predicts comes to pass because in 33 A.D. he predicted 70 A.D. destruction, and so therefore I believe him about future destructions as well. And I've got a lot of other scriptures on the, past, on the outline that will lead you into this same message. If you'd like to learn more about this Antichrist that will come, who he is like, what he will do, and his false prophet that will be with him, I am teaching on that this Wednesday night. Yes, this is a cheap plug. But in Revelation, Revelation chapter 13 is the passage on this individual and what he will do. And so if you want to have a sense of that, Antiochus Epiphanes is really prefiguring this individual. As you learn about him, you will recognize things in him. That is how Scripture teaches us. There's other passages like that where, uh, that I can get into, but I don't have time. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Watch, therefore, Jesus said for his return in verses 24 through 27. We read these words, but in those days after that tribulation, the tribulation I was just talking about with the, the Antichrist, abomination, desolation. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers that are in heaven will be shaken. So there's this huge cosmic disruption that's going on. We've been studying that in Revelation. Revelation 6, 8, 9, and 16 is all about what Jesus is talking about there. We've seen this cosmic revolution that is happening in the world in those last days. And the powers that are in heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send forth his angels who will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Jesus will come back. The abomination desolation sets up the final return of Jesus Christ. And he will then gather together those who are his chosen ones, those who are the elect, those who believe in Jesus those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is a fact. And Jesus will gather those people together. He says, I want you to look for that. And then he says, I want you to look for his return. I want you to be aware of his return. In fact, he goes on to say this, take heed, keep on the alert. This will be next week. But keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. What I say to you, and he repeats it in verse 37, be on the alert. Sometimes the last thing we think about is that, oh, Jesus could come back today. 
and yet he is letting us know, be alert. I want you to be aware of the false signs. I want you to be aware of the true signs. I want you to be ready. And the so what is this? I love this passage. 1 John 2.28 says this. Now listen to these words. Listen to this. This is John who was sitting there at the feet of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, sitting there listening to this prophetic words being given, sitting there listening to Jesus say, be alert to the second coming. Then John later writes this about Jesus. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, the second coming of Jesus, he is already on the alert. He is aware of that. He says, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is, the second coming of Jesus. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When I have my hope on the return of Christ, I want to be ready I want to be pure. I want to be who he is. I want to be more like him. It's like a bride walking down the aisle to her groom. No bride walks down the aisle with a dirty, filthy, torn dress and mud all over her face and her hair. A bride spends more money on that day than she'll spend (laughs) on any other day after that day to get before her groom. And so John uses some of that imagery of being ready to appear. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. As we go to communion, I want us to be part of that preparation that it could be today. There is nothing that needs to occur for Jesus to return today. And I simply throw out the question, not for guilt, but simply for hope. That if he were to return today for you or for me, would I be ready? Would I welcome him? Or would I cower in shame because I haven't lived the life that he's invited me into? So we're inviting you into that life. We're inviting you to come before Christ, to receive his forgiveness, to put your faith and trust in him as Savior, where he died on that cross to make payment for your sins so you could be ready for the fact that he will come back a second time. And if you'd like to believe in Jesus right now, we're going to invite you to do that. And as the leaders prepare with the elements, let me pray this prayer, which is an invitation for you to purify through Christ. Not for your good works. Don't come to church to be pure. You come to church to worship. But let Jesus purify you and make you ready. So let me pray for us. Help us, Father, as we come before you for this day. Lord, We recognize that there's much about the end times that I don't get, that we don't get. But yet that much we do know, that you are returning. You want us to be ready for that return. We are your bride, as Paul calls us. We are the bride of Christ. I want us as a bride to be pure and holy, ready, no shame, complete confidence because of what your son Jesus has done. And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, that he died to pay for your sins, to give you a brand new life, a brand new start, where old things are gone, 
brand new things have come. I invite you to believe in Jesus now. Words like this might be words that you would offer to God. God in heaven, I choose to believe in Jesus. I know that he died for me. And I want forgiveness. So forgive me today. And please give me that purity that John writes about. So I know that I am ready for when he returns. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. We offer these elements, the bread and the cup, symbolizes the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. It's what Jesus does for us that allows us to have communion with a holy God.